positive stories, case studies and videos could be the way to overcome the poor perception consumers have of the financial services industry. In this episode of the Marketing Protection and Finance podcast, I talk to a journalist who believes that we must all work together to push more positive stories out across all media. Hi, it's Roger Edwards here and welcome to the Empath Podcast. This is the podcast for providers and advisors looking to share business ideas and inspiration in the world of protection and finance. You can find the notes that go with the show at rogeredwards.co.uk forward slash empath. In the meantime, let's get on with the show and prepare to be inspired. Just before I introduce my guest today, let me give you a heads up about the format of this episode of the Empath Podcast. Usually when I interview a provider, advisor or industry expert, I ask them to choose the subject or focus for the show. It could be about their business model, a recent product they've launched or a marketing campaign they've been involved with. And we then follow an outline script looking at where the idea came from, the challenges they faced, where the customer benefit is and what success they've achieved. In this episode, my guest is a journalist, and therefore the format is a little different. Here the focus is on the journalist's views of the market as a whole. We discuss what positive changes we could introduce to create a real customer benefit. And of course, that could include the aforementioned business models, product launches, or marketing campaigns. So let's get into what I found to be a fascinating conversation with an interesting individual who has many years' experience as a financial services journalist, writer and comedian. So let's get to it. And my guest today is Edmund Turbot. Edmund is a freelance journalist and writer and has been covering financial services topics for the last 27 years. His articles are always painstakingly researched and hard-hitting. What you might not know about Edmund is that he used to be a semi-pro stand-up comedian and has recently started doing comedy again in addition to his journalism. He uses a pseudonym, which he says he won't be revealing, but he's recently been performing alongside world-renowned comedians like Mike Wozniak and John Maloney. So, welcome, Edmund, to the Empath Podcast. Hi, Roger. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. Yourself? Not too bad at all. It's great to have you on the show. I know we've got a lot of really interesting things to talk about. But before we start, Edmund, let's just find out a little bit about what makes you tick. Give me a little bit of background about where you came from, how you got into journalism. I think it's fairly safe to say I ended up being a financial journalist because I found I couldn't really do anything else. And I think you'll find that's the story you get from most financial journalists if you ask them. I drifted after leaving university. I got a, I got a third class degree in medieval history, which wasn't terribly useful during the early 1980s recession. A Richard and III. I, <laughs> and I didn't do any terribly uh, sort of prestigious jobs until, in desperation, I stuck an advert in the Telegraph, I think it was, saying, have MA, fly me, you know, I'm wonderful, give us a chance to get a job. And that was in and the London Life Association, being very forward-thinking, uh, answered this and took me in for an interview, and they gave me a job on the sales side in 1984. And uh, I did that for a year, and then I went to legal and general in the marketing department for a couple of years uh, and realized that whilst I was very popular there and I enjoyed it, I was never going to, you know, I wasn't a company person, but I used my knowledge uh, to, I decided to 
you know, go self-employed. And I started being a journalist and I used my knowledge to become a financial journalist, gave me something to write about and uh, took it from there. And I started I started writing about protection, really. 1998, I think it was, I started I was a regular for the Mail on Sunday in those days. And I came across a very interesting case study of uh, a computer analyst who hadn't been he had a brain tumor and he hadn't been paid by an insurer and asked and i and he should have been paid and i remember spending a lot of time getting him paid and writing a big article about it and i found that very rewarding and from then on i used to start getting a lot of mail from other people who didn't really know what to do when they thought they would had valid claims turned down so i wrote quite a lot of high profile articles getting getting people paid you know over a hundred thousand pounds or in one case i think it was quarter a million with an income protection claim and, and i just felt you know, I got quite a lot of satisfaction out of doing something useful in a way that I didn't do out of writing about pensions, etc. So I sort of specialised in protection. In fact, for, for one period between 2004 and 2012, I didn't actually write about anything else. But now I've gone back to writing about other things as well, as I feel I'm, protection fields lost some of its appeal. Uh, the thing I really liked about it when I started specialising in it was everybody was terribly, terribly interested in the subject. They weren't just talking about making money. Like, if you, if you talk to a general insurance broker, uh, all they talk about is just what commission they've earned, and that, that's about as interesting as they get. And in the protection field, they seem genuinely interested in the subject matter, and I, I found more recently that hasn't been quite so much the case. There's far too much, there's far too much emphasis on uh, commercial returns, etc. And, uh, and I don't really feel, when I'm writing about protection, I'm necessarily doing anything significantly more worthwhile now than when I'm just writing about other areas of personal finance which are indeed useful for people i think uh, one of the things i always remember about talking to you when i was in a life insurance company myself was when you would ring up you'd say right i want to talk about critical illness cover or income protection or whatever it was and you would always start the conversation by saying and i'm only going to talk to you if you've got something really interesting and really new to say i don't want you to <laughs> you know i don't want you to give me the same old corporate uh, blurb you've got to have something really interesting to say and, and that's in, probably why i bothered to talk to you roger <laughs> Absolutely. But at least there, there was that ability to put over something uh, interesting and something new. And, and your articles always dig a little bit deeper into the subject than, than some others. And I, and I think that, that, was, that that's always one of the things that drew me to your articles was the depth that you go into your subject. Well, I think it's... I think that's probably because originally I, I wanted to be a writer. I think I didn't set out to be a journalist necessarily. I mean, the only two things I was any good at when I was at university were writing and acting, and they're not terribly easy to make a living from. I mean, you So I probably envisaged myself originally as sort of, you know, dreamt about winning the Booker Prize or something. Uh, but I find if you if you write an article and you research it well and you do it to the best of your ability, you get a similar buzz what, what you would get from doing a bit of creative writing, like a short story, etc. But if you only just dance over the surface and don't really try and do it properly, you don't really get that satisfaction out of it. I mean, you might as well just go and sort of uh, sell hamburgers or something if you're just trying to do it to make money because it's not a hugely well-paid profession. No, and, and it looks as if when you've looked at protection as your subject, you started out almost like a campaigner. So you were very much, here's a consumer who's been wronged by a provider. I'm going to get him paid. But as time gone, has gone by, you've become more of an expert and, and have started to analyse the market a lot more and analyse products and propositions and, and campaigns. You've really just become more of a, of a, of a focus as opposed to just somebody who, uh, who, who goes up against a, a company that hasn't uh, fulfilled its obligations. Oh, sure. That was, a, that was a phase I went through that got me initially interested in it. And then, then I started offering my services to the trade publications like sort of health insurance magazine and things like that and i wrote yeah very regularly in depth about things i guess another thing that has made me very interested in in the area and made me come at it from a slightly different angle is 
is I've had health problems myself, and uh, I remember when I took out a, uh, a joint, a combined life and health policy with Pegasus, which was probably, I don't know if you were at that company at that time, but uh, it was... I remember that. It was called the CHIPS plan, wasn't it? It was, yeah, exactly. And I, because I'd been writing about it, I thought, well, that sounds a good one. And it never occurred to me that I would be a, a non-standard health risk, frankly. I'd had, I had sort of some stress-related problems, which I'm not really bothered about talking about because I've written a best-selling book detailing <laughs> uh, how I used to have a drink problem. So I hadn't really had these for 10 years, and I was rather concerned about the fact that I got turned down altogether. And I'd just taken this, applied to have this policy um, just before getting married for the first time. And, you know, I got the result uh, when I came back from my honeymoon. I was told I'd been turned down, which isn't a sort of great start to your marriage, particularly, you know, when, when you have to explain to your uh, other half. Yeah. <laughs> you know, which, what they, because the things to me were so irrelevant, I'd never even mentioned them to uh, the, the person I was getting married to. So that made me sort of feel quite deeply that life wasn't really fair for people who had uh, non-standard health risks. And I've also always had a bad back, which hasn't helped with sort of income protection things. So I've always sort of looked at, you know, looked at it from a slightly different angle because a lot of the coverage is about people going in at headline rates and it's not really always quite what it seems um, because you can get charged an awful lot more or indeed not, not taken on altogether. It was quite an interesting concept that, if I remember rightly, it included life insurance, critical illness cover, income protection, possibly even a, a sort of long-term care element. Yeah, it did. Yeah, yeah. but that sort of um, approach, I mean, uh, when Pegasus eventually disappeared, and that product disappeared. I don't really think we've seen anything come along to replace it. Yes, we've got the menu plans. Well, that's which you invented available. the menu, Roger. Abs- absolutely. Yeah. The combined health plan was more of a, I don't know, was more like a pot of cash, wasn't it? So yeah. you drew down a percentage if you had critical illness, you drew down a percentage if you had income that's protection. Right. I guess the closest we've come to that uh, more recently was possibly with the, the real life cover. I mean, it's not, the, not, not, not exactly the same, but I mean, it, it attempted to... Uh, combine a lot of different products, didn't it? Yeah, the Aegeus in, in, plan. Yeah, yeah, the Aegeus plan, um, which I gather is still... Well, I, I was having coffee with someone from Aegeus the other day, and they were referring to it as being an active part of their product range. But when I've written about it, they've never been too... You know, they, 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 you, you can tell when people haven't been sort of... Uh, breaking any records with sales from the, the way they report them. Um, Again, I think it's a shame because the concept is really quite strong. Um, perhaps the problem is it's just too different to what's available in the market generally. Yeah, well, I, I would agree with that. I mean, it is a pity. I, I thought that it was a very, very good idea, the real-life real plan, and I'm very sympathetic people come out with it. I mean, I think half the problem... I mean, I, I've decided in my own mind that nobody's ever going to successfully reinvent the wheel in the individual market because... Uh, it's, it's not a question of just doing something that everybody thinks is very good. And I mean, I know in the real life cover, they involved a lot of consultants and they got good feedback on it, etc. But at the end of the day, what you've really got to do is get on the, the aggregator sites, I'm sure. And I'm sure that that's where it's formed. I mean, to my knowledge, it's not. It may be perhaps on one or something like that. But it, it, you're never going to really hit, hit the, uh, the public unless you do that. And then the other the other barrier, I think, is also with the. Uh, the networks, I think you've, you've got to get past their compliance people and you've got to be accepted to be on their panels. And, and that's quite a challenge because they want to do things um, the, the way they want to do them. They don't necessarily want to spend a lot of time considering a new product, etc. And uh, I'm sure you've had experience with this when you were at Bright Grey and uh, Scottish Provident having to deal with people like that. But I wouldn't have thought it was the easiest thing to do. Uh, and unless you're going to crack those two things, you can have the most brilliant idea you like and you're never really going to reach takeoff points. So I'd be surprised to see any more attempts. I mean, there have been a lot of them over the years. There was, I remember I was involved in, in 
a writing capacity in the launch of when Unum did their Elixir 123. That must be about 15 years ago. Now, that was a very good idea as well. And again, that never caught on because uh, they didn't really have the relationship with intermediaries and things. And I think, again, the aggregators wouldn't have liked that. So I think reinventing the wheel is now out. I think you were the last person to do that with your menu, which was sort of half. That, that, that was sort of uh, reinventing a few spokes, wasn't it? So not, 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 not it, the whole it, wheel. it was, and, and, and I think it's quite a sad situation that we're in. You, I think you've described that absolutely perfectly, and I agree with exactly what you've said. The, the institutions of the industry are actually preventing innovation and and i've talked to a few people on earlier uh, earlier episodes of the podcast and they've identified regulation as something that stifles innovation but i i i actually think that to a certain extent regulation is is obviously a necessary evil we have to have it and i and i think that the industry tends to platinum plate the regulation and, and almost use it as an excuse but what you've identified here the fact that to get on panels you've got to have a, a concept that everybody understands and to be on the consolidation platform you've got to have something comparable it almost rules out anything new at all because in order to comply you've got to be the same and, yeah, and that's actually ridiculous now with the with, with the broker networks because i mean you know, their compliance departments are very wary of recommending anything new aren't they yeah uh, and so but on the on the actual aggregators it's just a question of of it, it's not profitable for them, is it, to have to completely, you know, redesign things just to accommodate the odd new thing. And do you think this will ever change? Is is somebody going to come out with something that is just so good that they'll have to uh, bend the, the rules, they'll have to change their approach in order to accommodate it? No, I don't think it is. I think what we're going to see is a continuation of process innovation, which has really been where we've had the development. So something like tele-underwriting, was it the late 90s or the mid-noughties wasn't it? I think it was the mid-noughties, yeah So that, so somebody uh, a couple of companies came out, I think it was was it uh, uh, AXA was one of them, was it Fortis was the other? Fortis and I, uh, yeah, the early that version did. of the GS, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so they, they came out with it and I feel rather sorry for them really because what they did was they came out with a really good idea and then everybody else nicked it off them and they didn't necessarily make any money from it but it's, it's, it's that type of thing um, that's moved the industry forward. Different ways of, of making things more efficient, more consumer-friendly, etc. I always thought it was amazing that tele-underwriting hadn't come in a long time before because that was one of the things that made me think about when, when I was turned down for my uh, health insurance and life, the, the combined policy at that time. I mean, I remember being uh, terribly hung up about the fact that when I mentioned the fact I wanted to take out life and health cover, my accountant said, why don't you do it through me? And I thought, I don't want to do it through you. I don't want you to know that I've had these problems, do you see? Yeah. It's a very personal thing. In those days, it wasn't that easy to talk about stress and it wasn't nowadays it's quite fashionable isn't it to say you're stressed etc but in those days it was a there was a big taboo about it and and i didn't want anybody to know about that and uh, but if i'd been able to phone up a uh, a helpline um and have a private discussion it would have been a lot easier and also it would have prevented me from being turned down wouldn't it because they would have said don't go ahead with it because you're going to get underwritten hours Absolutely, and, and, and there's always that disappointment as well when you apply for something at a certain price and then the company comes back to you and says, well, we either can't accept you or we can accept you, but it's going to cost you four times as much as you were originally quoted. Well, that's why I've always thought, really, we're never going to reach take-off points and close the protection gap through complex individual products because they, they are just too complicated. But I, I think that the, the way forward has always been some kind of extension of the group market uh, and making it available 
to individuals through affinity type schemes or whatever, or maybe just through um, you know group schemes via linked to auto enrollment that type of thing. And I've always, whenever I've looked into this and had sensible discussions with with suitably qualified people, I've been having lunch and throwing a few ideas around. I, I've always sort of established that it could be done in a way that cover could cost a tiny fraction of what it does at the moment in the individual market if, say, a large building society, instead of selling somebody's products, decided to have, say, a non-profit-making protection product, etc. Everybody who had a mortgage with them had access to, and there was no individual underwriting because of the critical mass available. People could, could get that protection for a fraction of the price that they're, they're being charged at the moment. But nobody seems to have the, the incentive to do it. And I think that a lot of the consultants out there you know, very keen to try and find complex solutions in the individual market, etc., because it, it gets them work by having things to talk about and advise on. Whereas if it was uh, in the group market, which I think is the way, the way forward, they wouldn't really be very relevant to that. And uh, there are other people, you know, who, who would be more relevant, probably at the large benefit consultants, that type of thing, who, who would be you know, involved in the group market, who would be making the actuarial decisions on these things. Yeah, I did a lot of work a few years back um, on worksite marketing and uh, did quite a bit of research of, of um, this concept in the United States. And worksite marketing is huge in the United States. They, they have great big sign-up days within companies of all sizes so from companies with 10 employees to companies with 10,000 employees they have these great big sign up days where people go along they listen to presentations by brokers about protection and pensions and investments and then for the rest of the day they've got a whole load of people sat there just signing them up and and of course when I was doing this research a lot of uh, UK people were saying well worksite marketing is the way forward for protection in the UK do you think that that's more of a possibility now that we've got auto enrollment on pensions is is that the way forward then for protection um, it's, it's the same issue as, as we've got on pensions is is uh you know, how cost-effective can the guidance or advice or whatever you want to call it, depending on you know, what package it comes out in, is, is, is it going to be? I mean, on, on this, this new generic advice guidance that, that George Osmond's talking about, I mean, I think people are expecting it to be delivered for somewhere in the region of about sort of £200 a person, etc. Well, they've obviously got to be a bit forward-thinking to do that. They're not going to do it with face-to-face appointments. But if we could use, say, Skype or you know, perhaps telephone guidance or something like that, you know, if it's not done well, it can be clearly uncost-effective. Uh, so if you think about it, there are very small margins involved. Um, Indeed. And uh, you've got to see an awful lot of people in the same day. They've got to come home with sort of 15 policies or something, otherwise it hasn't been worth it. The more people I talk to um, who are saying that the only way that we can grow protection or even other financial services products is to move away from the um, advice model and to go either direct to consumer uh, or, or as you've, you've said, through affinity. I think one of the big problems we will always face is that when it comes down to it, the man on the street just really isn't interested in life cover, isn't interested in critical illness or income protection. It's just never at the top of their list of priorities. They'd much rather talk about cars or holidays or going out and uh, going to the cinema or going out for a meal. As a journalist, and having spoken to a lot more consumers, do you think that there's anything that the industry can do to actually get over that hurdle? Because it's all very well saying, let's go direct, let's go through, through the group side. But when you've got that big barrier, it's, it's, it's always going to be a problem. How, how, do we, how do we get over that? We've got to try and 
make make the product more interesting. I mean, there isn't anything that complicated about the protection products. The idea that you get a lump sum of money if you die isn't terribly complicated. The idea that somebody will pay you an income if you're unable to work isn't terribly complicated, or if they'll pay you a lump sum if you're diagnosed with something nasty isn't very complicated. But for some reason, everybody insists it to be more complicated uh, than it is. So I think you've got to you've got to engage people clearly. I, I've always maintained that, that they could make a lot more use of humour in protection. I think that I think they are beginning to do that. I've certainly done a lot more ghostwriting uh, in recent years when they actually want me to be funny because they realise that people actually read the articles, um, whereas they didn't like that in the old days. And I've noticed in there are presentations creeping in. Apparently, you did a very entertaining presentation at the Life Search uh, function this year. Steve Herbert from Jelf is very amusing on the group side. There's Peter Hamilton. And there's a guy from Medicash, that's not quite protection, but in cash plans, who, who always amuses me when I... So, so it is sort of starting to come in. People are realising the value of trying to, you know, capture people's attention and be engaging and entertaining, which was something that they, they did manage to do in, in other areas, like, like pensions and investment, but they didn't seem to do on the, on the protection side. So if you're going to, you know, expect people to listen, you've got to give them what they want. I, I, if I go along to a, a talk, I'm always... When I do the feedback forms, I'm always going to give the best marks to the people who made me laugh, uh, to be honest, because they're the people who held my attention. And that's going to have a rub off in the, the sales volumes that you get at the end of the day, particularly if you're going to do these sort of worksite marketing seminars. It is very difficult to be funny about the products. I've tried, I've tried to think of ways of doing that, and it's almost impossible. But you can be funny around the edges to get people's attention. Yeah, and, and, and I know this is a, a, a topic that you're really passionate about, Edmund. We, we've talked uh, quite a bit about how the pages within specialist health insurance and protection publications are getting thinner. There's, there's, there's less being printed. Is, is this new approach, is, is humour something that could start to fill more column inches if we can start being a little bit more interesting in that respect? I guess, I think it's going to be almost a, a prerequisite with the sort of the kind of written expert columns um, uh, because the trade press is now just sort of so full of these that people just simply don't read the ones unless they actually engage them. Um, the actual scope for being entertaining and the sort of the national space is pretty limited. Yes, you can have a cheesy headline and you can have a, you know, a good one-liner at the beginning or whatever, but from then on, uh, in my experience, anything you put in um, uh, will get taken out by the, the well, I always politely call it the subs, in case it's somebody I know. <laughs> 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 but, uh, but, so I think that the scope is limited there because you know, it's not, it's not a, a, a hugely funny subject. But I think that uh, if we're talking about worksite marketing and if we're talking about if seminars are going to be the way forward, which I think they are in a lot of ways, and if, if we're going to have so many pension seminars, then protection might be thrown in there as well, then you've got to get people to listen. And when I went to the protection review, did a, they, they gave a, an example for journalists of the kind of, sort of talks they'd been doing around the country. I thought it was, they got off to a very good start. It was very funny at the beginning, and I thought this is going to be really great. And then it just sort of seemed to sort of go into a bit more of a, just a standard talk. And I just think they should have kept that, tried to keep that momentum up all the way through. Yeah, and stories as well. You mentioned a, uh, the speech I did at Life Search. I recently did another one in, uh, in Liverpool for a, for a group called Financial Liverpool. And oh. I made a very specific effort to include quite a lot of stories within the presentation. Stories about people who'd claimed on policies and how it had changed their lives. You know, even re making reference to uh, some work that I did with Duncan Bannatyne a few years ago. And, oh. and I always remember um, he came up to me whilst we were doing 
doing it was a, it was a Scottish Provident uh, next level campaign, and Duncan Bannatyne was the was the spokesperson. And I started the uh, the whole thing off with a ten minute talk about uh, protection, and then of course Duncan Bannatyne came on and he did his speech about how he grew his empire of um, health clubs and, and and old people's homes and that sort of thing. But I started my presentation off by saying I am passionate about protection, and everybody at Scottish Provident is passionate about protection and he came up to me afterwards and he says that was a really good speech but you know when you said that you were passionate about protection that just sounded like bollocks <laughs> and, and and the whole point is he, he was completely right he says you're not passionate about protection you're passionate about changing somebody's life so you're passionate about paying somebody 100 grand if they have a heart attack you're passionate about making sure somebody doesn't lose their house if somebody dies those are the stories you've got to focus on. Telling somebody that you're passionate about protection just sounds really stupid. And he's absolutely right. And therefore, you think, well, how many claimants have I got that I can talk to? And how many of those claimants might be prepared to become a case study? Or in, e- even better, rather than just a case study with a couple of comments in, on, on, in an article in a magazine, how about a case study that's a video? So, talking head saying, I took out this policy and I had a heart attack and it paid me this money, etc., etc., and this is how it helped my, my life. So, are stories one of the ways that we will engage consumers more? Yeah, I like, I like the video idea. I've certainly seen Unum doing that. I think that definitely engaged people. I'm not sure about the cheesy little case study along with, you know, you're, you're writing your article on, on uh, children's cover and you have a little case study of Johnny who, who unfortunately had leukaemia and wasn't it lucky they had a critical illness policy, etc. And, and everybody lived happily ever after. I, I think it's, you know, it counts for more than it does on, I mean, some of the case studies I've had to do for, you know, like ISAs and things like that are really scraping the barrel. I mean, literally the story is this lady put in a thousand pounds into an ISA for her kid, and that, that's the story. But they, they like to have the case studies for the photos. Yes. In most personal finance articles. So I'm not sure your little 200 words in the nationals is, is that important. Well, I think the key is to have the case study interesting enough for the journalist to want to actually begin the article with it. That's the key. When you've got a sort of a special case study, um, so that they want to begin the article with it, and then they can devote three or four hundred words, possibly of a seven hundred word article about the case study, and then go on to the points it raises. And to be fair, with the pages now being so thin, and I don't think they're ever going to recover on the nationals. So I really don't. I think I think it's in a recession of its own. Our, our, our industry, um, journalism and financial journalism. Then you've got to aim for those extra special case studies if you want to interest uh, journalists, because people just don't have room for uh, too many bog standard things anymore. And I'm thinking about advisors out there who've been recommending protection products. If you think about the last great big surge of protection growth in the industry, it was around about the late 90s into about 2003, 2004. So it's about 10 years ago. And now those policies have been around for 10 years or so. Those are the ones that are creating the claims today. And therefore, we're seeing more claims being paid than we've ever seen before. And and the ABI recently published a figure of 97 percent of claims are paid so that's a good story so all those advisors out there have got this rich bank of stories that they can tell if they've got a client who would be willing 
to sit in front of a, of a video. And, and again, you don't need to get a camera crew into your office these days in order to uh, shoot something that can be broadcast. Crikey, we, can, we, we all carry um, stu- uh, film studios around in our pockets these days. They're called iPhones or, or uh, HTC Ones. You know, we've got high-quality HD cameras, we can create videos of these stories and they can then start to appear. The more positive stuff we've got out there, the more likely it is that we're going to overcome the preconceptions that a lot of the public have that financial services is negative and we don't pay claims. You know, I've had some editors at, at publications, uh, national publications, I've said, I said to them, uh, you know, would you like a, 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 an idea on critical illness? And they've come back. We don't cover critical illness, but we, you know, we'd only really be interested if there's an insurer who's done something wrong. <laughs> yeah. And uh, that that has made me sort of think. Well, it's not only the public who need educating, because I mean there are interesting things about when insurers do things right as well. There is this huge think- gulf between what the reality is and what the public thinks. And the aforementioned um, statistic that the ABI published recently: the 97% of claims are paid. I remember seeing another. Another statistic, I think it was Life Search that published this, that actually people on the street think that only 38% of claims are paid. So you've got this massive discrepancy between the reality and what people think. And that's why, again, I think that, you know, if we can start to overcome that attitude that people have, oh, we'll only touch it if it's a negative story. But the more positive stories we have out there, either as case studies or videos or audios or articles, eventually there'll be more positive stuff than there will be negative stuff. But everybody in the industry needs to help get those stories out there. Well, they do, and they're, they're not doing enough, to be honest. They need to try extra hard on those particularly interesting stories and then as you say if you can sort of reuse them if you can put them on a video or something like that then they could last for a very long time and that could have a huge shelf life and what i'd really like people to get out of this podcast today and this conversation that we're having edmund is almost like a commitment to looking for these stories and indeed you know getting in touch with journalists like yourself and i'm sure when we get to the end of the podcast and you share your contact details with me i'd like to encourage people to get in touch with you and say i've got a a customer who's very happy with the way things have gone will be willing to be interviewed will be willing to be videoed will be willing to be recorded for an audio and we can start to work together to get these stories out there into the media sure no that, that would be good um now, if you could achieve that, Roger, from your uh, podcast, that would be a very positive outcome, I think, for everybody. Edmund, it's been fascinating to talk to you about all of these um, protection industry issues. And so before we go, I always like to finish the Empath podcast with some quick-fire business questions. Are you happy to go for that? Sounds very frightening, but I'll play game. What's the one business model or product or campaign that's caught your attention in the last year? I would say Unum's short-term income protection. It's on the group side, uh, but it's been a, a very interesting launch. What they've come up with is a, an income protection product which effectively fills the, the six-month deferred period. So it's very good for the, the fact that statutory sick payers now can't be reclaimed um, with effect from this April. So that, that sort of, And it means that companies can, they can uh, budget for their sickness absence with greater certainty and they also can benefit from Unum's sort of rehab team etc and get a lot of the benefits that they can from a, a grouping and protection policy and I, I think that this is going to really work, it's huge in America but they're the only people to have done it over here, in America I think uh, it's almost if not more popular than, it, than income protection so that 
to me is a you know is, is a good one, and I'm I'm very glad they've done it. And I think other people are watching, and I think they will in due course follow suit. What is the best business book you've ever read? Tell us why you like it and what you took from it. Oh goodness me! Well, I I uh, can only see out of one eye at the same time, which means I've never really been able to read for pleasure. So I think most business books I ever read was in about 1990 when I was writing a book called How to Increase Sales Without Leaving Your Desk, which has a marketing title. And the the publisher biked round, it was Kogan Page, he biked round his 30 leading marketing titles for background research in a sort of great big box. And there were a lot of really quite prestigious authors in there. And I read, or I skimmed through all 30, and I made one line of notes, (laughs) (laughs) which tells you probably what I sort of thought of marketing books. I thought they were sort of largely waffles. So I'd say... If I, the only one I could think of that I've probably enjoyed reading was quite recently I enjoyed Peter Hargreaves' autobiography from Hargreaves Lansdowne. Okay. Uh, I don't know if you've read that. Um, that was, I suppose you could say that was the marketing title. It, had a, it was an awful lot about it. It was, uh, was uh, about how he started his business and haggled with costs and got good advertising deals, etc. And it was very interesting for me because he mentioned so many people in the industry um, that I... You know, I've obviously come across and worked with, etc. And he had comments about the media. So I would recommend that to anybody in financial services as a good read. And they would learn something about how to set up a financial services business. And before we go, Edmund, tell everyone how they can connect with you, either on email or LinkedIn or however you prefer people to get in touch. Right. The the best way (laughs) of contacting me is by email on turbot at aol.com. That's T for Tommy, I for E and R for Robert, B for Bravo, U for Umbrella, double T for Tommy, at A for Apple, O for Orange, L for London, dot com. LinkedIn, whenever I get a request to link in, I just put yes and I accept. And I've now got over 400 LinkedIn people. And the one thing that all of them have got in common is that I don't know who on earth any of them are. Uh, <laughs> I, I would say that if you want to... A tip for anybody, financial marketer, if, if you want to test out a, a new marketing concept or a new product and do some market research with complete strangers, send it to everybody you're linked in with because they won't know you from Adam and you can get completely objective feedback on it. So please don't contact me through LinkedIn. By all means, send me a LinkedIn thing and I'll say accept if you want to uh, add boost your numbers. I think the message everybody is if you want Email. to get in touch with Edmund and I really hope that you will get in touch with Edmund with some stories some case studies about people who've claimed on policies or who have positive stories to tell about the financial services industry email Edmund at turbot at AOL.com Edmund the- thanks very much for talking to me today let me wish you success in the future and I hope to catch up with you again soon pleasure Roger thank you thank you too Thanks for listening to the Marketing Protection and Finance Podcast, also known as the Empath Podcast. Do please look at the show notes at rogeredwards.co.uk forward slash empath for links to the apps and books and topics we discussed. If you enjoyed the show, I'd be grateful if you would leave a review on iTunes. Simply visit rogeredwards.co.uk forward slash iTunes and leave a comment. If you are a provider, advisor or journalist and you have a product, campaign or business model that you want to talk about, do please get in touch. I'd be delighted to have you as a guest on the Empath Podcast. 
And before we go, just to remind you that nothing that my guests and I talked about on the show is intended to be financial advice of any kind. It's just our thoughts and opinions, okay? Okay.